0: I want us to look this morning at Matthew 6, uh, and we'll read from verse 5 through 15. And if you have an ESV or or whatever version you have, um, some versions have the subject of the specific passages labeled there. Mine says the Lord's Prayer. If yours says that, well, you get a hint of what we're going to be getting into um, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I'll take maybe two uh, petitions today, and then uh, Desmond will carry on with, with uh, the rest of it. Let's go ahead and read, uh, beginning with verse 5. And this is Jesus' words. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespass, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespass, neither will your Father forgive your trespass. Making God the focus of our praying sounds almost too common to mention, but I want to mention it. Uh, because uh, I think experience dictates that many Christians have failed to grasp this point, right? That God should be the primary focus of our prayers. Focusing instead on what God does rather than on whom God is, I think redirects the focus of prayer and results in forms of expression that I think are less honoring than they should be. When we look at the Lord's Prayer, and we, it's been called the Lord's Prayer traditionally, and I think it's a good title for it, um, but we should never think, when, it's, when we call it the Lord's Prayer, that it's Jesus' prayer, uh, that these are his personal petitions, especially when you look at, um, give us this, our daily bread, forgive us our debts, right? Jesus did not need forgiveness. He walked perfectly under the law of God. So that should be a sign that when we say the Lord's prayer, we call it the Lord's prayer, it's not so much his personal prayer, his personal petitions, but he's setting forth a model of prayer for believers, for sinners like us. So what is it what is the pattern of the Lord's prayer reveal? I'm going to point a few things. Number 1, Um, you'll see that the prayer consists of a preface and then it follows six petitions. The first three petitions are focused upon God while the last three are directed at man. The prayer also worships first before it asks for something personal. I found that to be my personal favorite uh, aspect or, or, or thing that this prayer reveals. It he begins first by exalting the name of God. Um, and then he goes on into um, personal petitions. Number four, uh, it's comprehensive, right? It covers things as worship. It covers something like, it covers things related to the kingdom of God. Um, it covers uh, things related to grace and protection, things like that. Uh, number five, it embodies three out of four, or, or maybe even more elements that we see in common prayers in Scripture. Um, it covers uh, adoration, uh, there's that petition, and there's even confession, there's some elements of that in there. Uh, and I would say the other would be uh, thanksgiving. And there's more um, elements that we would see in, in prayers and scriptures, but you would at least see at least this adoration and then the petition and a confession element. Um, we need to ask of our own prayers. Are our own prayers worshipful to God? Do, do we begin with worship? Do we acknowledge whom who is the one that we come before when we when we pray? We should ask ourselves, are, are, are our petitions God-centered? Or do your prayers sound... Like you don't know the God that you're praying to? <laughs> are they informed by the Word of God, God's revelation? Are they consistent with the character of God? Or are you praying things that sound like you're praying to a different God, even? Doesn't match the triune God of Scripture? Do they reveal an increasing sense of our depravity? Is your chief end in your prayer the glory of God or to glorify God? Uh, These questions, I think, can help us to identify at least the quality of of our prayer. Uh, And we should look to the Lord's prayer to help us um, compare and to see where we are in comparison to it. One of the startling things that this kind of analysis can do is to reveal selfishness in much of our praying. Uh, And it was Calvin who suggested in his institutes That man's mind is a perpetual factory of idols. Idolatry is the Bible's word for basically robbing God of his glory. And putting ourselves in the center of all things. We don't need to create images or statues to do that. We simply need to ignore that God is there and ignore desires to worship for him or ignore to worship him in general. How many prayers become a series of medical reports? Or, uh, And again, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with bringing these petitions to God. But I only say that um, to say that there's, there's often a lack of worship in our prayers. We almost separate that from prayer. Um, whereas I think a more holistic, consistent way of praying that's consistent with Scripture What we see in the Bible is prayer that is filled with worship, where you can be still and you can concentrate on the character of God. And you would meditate on his truths, meditate on the things that the scriptures reveal about him, and let that fill you, right? And as you pray, you pray in light of those truths, in light light of the Attributes of God and who, who whom you are going before as you pray. Without the accompanying of worship, sometimes our prayers become self-centered in ways that I think are unhealthy spiritually speaking. Um, we 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 should pull back a little bit and really consider um, worship in our prayers. Um, some graces grow best in winter. This is uh, something that uh, Samuel Rutherford wrote. And some prayers mature when life is bitter. And just as Martin Luther could say of the humanist Erasmus in the days of the Reformation, that his God was too small. Uh, so in our praying, God becomes most, almost insignificant sometimes. Right? There's this self-focus. He is relegated to the role of a powerful healer brought in because, of, because everything else has failed. He's almost the last resort. Um, we seek other things. Um, and I think part of that is um, that we've, in a sense, inherited a very materialistic way of looking at life. Uh, a very naturalistic way of looking at all of life. Um, whereas we need to recover... Um, a way of looking at all things um, with the acknowledgement that God is there and God is creator and everything that exists exists in him. It exists in him. They they move and they have their being because God is. When the Athanasian Creed in its five minute long exposition of the nature of God speaks at one point of the father incomprehensible the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. Its design was to extol the imagination, uh, excuse me, the imaginable greatness of the triune God of Scripture. So while our prayers may not be able to reflect that kind of precision, their general aim in exalting God ought to be evident. We need to be able to see that. That needs to be, um, you know, rich in our prayers. Our prayers, if, if you can think of a rag, they need to be soaked with the knowledge of God. Um, and we, we need to recover that. We need to retrieve that. I think it would it would do you well to, uh, to spend a lot of time studying the character of God, the attributes of God, the nature of God, the doctrine of God in general. And I think we skip over that because we want to rush into the spiritual practices. Um, but you forget that every spiritual practice that we do, and this includes worship and our worship services and um, all the all, all things that you do to the glory of God, right? You evangelize, you speak to your neighbor. But it, 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 it's interesting how that works where you do these things, but you forgot to sit and, and study and soak in the character of God and let that be a regular routine in your life. Aim at that first. When you do that, you will see your prayers transform uh, in a very different way. There's something simple when we look at the Lord's Prayer, something simple about the Lord's Prayer. Of course, it, it's deep. It's not that it's, it's simple in the sense that it's shallow. It's very deep. Nevertheless, its form is essentially straightforward and undemanding. Co- a couple of things that I want to say about the Lord's Prayer here. Um, the Lord's Prayer is, is conversation. It has this conversational response. Um, it's conversational in nature, uh, and it's almost as if we're answering questions brought to us by God when you read the Lord's Prayer. Uh, for example, the first question that I would think um, would seem to appear in the Lord's Prayer would be, who do you think I am, right? It's almost as if God is asking, who am I? Uh, and right there in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, it says, our Father in heaven, right? Right? A um, uh, second question would be, What is it that you desire the most? Right under the uh, Our Father in Heaven, it says, Hallowed be your name. And so the Christian is answering this question of what is it that we desire most? And the answer should be um, that God's name be hallowed, exalted. What else do we desire? And then follows the other petitions, right? Daily bread, forgiveness, and then guidance along the way as we live as Christians. <laughs> a second uh, observation that we see in the Lord's Prayer is that the, this prayer is very covenantal. This prayer is very covenantal. What do I mean by covenantal? It expresses a, it, it's an expression that only fits in the context of a relationship between God and his creature. It's not a prayer that anyone can pray out there, right? It's so specifically geared for, or or set up for the Christian, that when (coughs) the religious unbeliever out there prays this prayer, it loses its meaning. It just becomes this religious chant, right? The Lord's Prayer. Whereas when we look at the prayer, it's very covenantal. And when I say covenantal, I, I say, think about a marriage, right? A uh, husband and a wife. That's a covenant, a pact, right? Uh, a Christian is in a pact with God. And of course, our end, our part in the pact um, has, has been taken care of, right? It's, it's not that we are in this covenant where we have certain covenant stipulations that if we don't meet it, we're out of the covenant, or we're out of this pack. we're out of this marriage. No, thanks be to God, uh, God has found a way for not only his part, his contribution to the covenant to be uh, fulfilled and to be done, but even our part, right? In Christ, we are made fit for this covenant. Um, we enter into this covenant, uh, and we can never fall out of it. But again, this prayer, the Lord's prayer is very covenantal in nature. it it fits the person who has a salvific relationship with God. Um, you see where it says, "I will be your God and you shall be my people." that you hear that in, in exodus six uh, seven uh, and that theme, "I will be your God and you shall be my people," is a, is a, is a theme that I think echoes this covenant bond throughout the Bible. It's a, it's a constant theme that you see throughout scripture. And the Lord's prayer echoes that kind of fellowship. I am your God and you are my people. And this is how this is how prayer looks like between a covenant God and his covenant people. There's nothing in this prayer, and this is something in addition to, to this concept, there's nothing that a, that this prayer in this prayer a child can't um, repeat. It's simple in that sense where the themes are clear. Um, And we'll get into that in more depth. But the point is that the language that the Lord has chosen here is reflective of that intimacy that we all enjoy uh, between us and our Heavenly Father. Because we know Him, and not simply that we know about Him, but that we know Him in a real sense, in a real salvific sense, there's an intimacy between us and the Father and that's how we're able to pray that prayer where it, it, um, it fulfills its true purpose, its true meaning. Um, the way that you pray this and you pray this rightly is to pray this as a child of God, as a son or as a daughter of, of our Heavenly Father. So again, that's what makes it covenantal. Um, Jesus rebuked those lengthy discourses of the Pharisees. And he, he also rebuked mindless Repetition, these chants. And these are things that the pagans would do. And they, they, they are characterized by having this sort of superstitious, superstitious um, characteristic to it. Where you, you're repeating uh, and it's usually done out of the flesh to feel some sort of sensation. But Jesus rebukes that kind of thing. The Lord's Prayer, on, in the, on the contrary, that should be our model. Uh, pray like this, is what he says right before he lays out the the, uh, the outline of this prayer. Uh, praying like this is sufficient to gain the ear of the Almighty God. Its structure is meant to ensure that we think about what we pray and not just do things mindlessly. Uh, he, he didn't design this prayer so that we can chant it. Although it may be good to say it and get used to it and, and make it something habitual, it's Primary purpose was so that we understand the content and the point, the points that he was trying to um, lay out in the prayer. It was meant to be understood. Um, it Its balance is meant to ensure that we uh, place God first. Its simplicity is meant to encourage every believer to be a prayer warrior, a, a, a person who is constantly praying and thinking the, on these things. Point number three is about Uh, this prayer um, revealing something about consistency. I'll I'll break that down. Uh, When Jesus calls our attention to this kind of prayer, it was for the purpose of private devotion that he calls attention uh, to this uh, by way of a, a prelude to this prayer. What enables prayer is the constant Uh, resort to what God what Jesus calls in this passage secret prayer you see that in Matthew 6 6 we just read that a, a few minutes ago where he says but when you pray go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret this is what he had in mind this was fresh out of Jesus's mind out of his lips he's saying this right before he lays out the example of the Lord's prayer he's saying don't be like that person who's praying out in the public be the type of person that goes into his room, locks the door, and prays in private. i was thinking of that the
1: reference of uh, Luke 18
0: mm-hmm. about the uh, Pharisee. You know, I'm, I'm not. I'm glad I'm not like this. Yeah. Sinner. Right. Yeah. There's there's sort of a boasting kind of uh, approach to prayer, whereas the other one had more of a contrite heart. Um, it was. Uh, yeah, it's a great example. Now, this is a lesson that, that emerges in Scripture in more than one location. Uh, that what we are in private is determinative of what we may become in public. And that should be a pattern, a rhythm that we see in Christians. And this is something that you should, ha- th- that you should practice, right? This concept of what you are in private will eventually come out in the public. Don't do the opposite. <laughs> Don't try to be something in the public And then that not really being a demonstration of what you really are in private. Mm -hmm. Work on your private life. Uh, Work on your private prayers. And God will exalt you in the public. For his glory, right? It's not for our glory. But that theme you see in scripture, right? Um, A wonderful model, prayer of Daniel. We see in uh, Daniel 9, 4 through 19. You don't have to turn there, but you can. Um, We read the prayer in that passage and we, we want to be like that. We want to, we want to see that as a model uh, for prayer. Actually, let's turn there. Let's look at it. Daniel 9, 4 through 19. And can I get a volunteer to read that? So we're looking at Daniel 9, verses 4 through 19.
1: Our kings, our princes, and our fathers, to all the people of the land. To you, O oh Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at, at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands in which you have, have driven them, because of their treachery that you have committed against, they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us, because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there there has not been anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. (laughs) And as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. 14? Um,
0: Yeah, 19.
1: And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of mighty hand we have made a name for yourself as it as at this day we have sinned we have done wickedly O lord according to all your righteousness righteous acts let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city jerusalem your holy hill because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to the pleas for his mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Hmm. O oh Lord, hear! O oh Lord, forgive! O oh Lord, pay attention and act! Delay not, for your own sake. O oh my God, because your
0: city and your people are called by your name. Amen. I love that. Love that prayer. Just, it's so rich an example and um, that contrite heart coming for the Lord and and coming before the Lord and recognizing um, his sin and the sin of his people. So we read the prayer and we long to be able to do that, to be able to pray in that way. And I think it's a good model um, for, for many. But the secret to Daniel's public prayer lay in his habitual resort to pray. Um, it's, it's sort of a, an outflow of something that he's already doing in his private life. Um, and the key to Daniel's prayer lies, I think, in what we read Prior to that, Daniel 6:10, 10, where it says, Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had wit- uh, windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God. And this is the key part here, as he had been doing previously. This is Daniel's lifestyle. He was constantly praying. In fact, he scheduled three times a day to pray. Sort of these pillars in his day, daily schedule so that he's constantly before the lord this is something that he he um
1: there's a little he established nugget, yeah there's a little nugget in there for me that giving thanks that that's the first thing of praying giving thanks. I mean, yeah daniel's position mm. in a foreign land working for a pagan king and that's a little that's a, Oh. Yeah. Now, why does it say oh, in, in panic mode, begging for rel- relief? No. <laughs> right. he's, he's being thankful, even in
0: that. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Good observation. Yeah. Uh, something in that prayer with Daniel praying three times a day, mm-hmm. uh, we can, we can exhaust, feel exhausted ourselves through repeating. Mm-hmm. Jesus' Ephesus in seven, verse 7, mm-hmm. the one small word is vain repetition. Mm-hmm. That we not pray in vain, empty. Yeah shallow you know yeah there are some things that we repeat in our prayers Mm -hmm. but they should always be heavy in our hearts and real to us and not just for saying that absolutely you make an excellent point i'm actually glad that you said that i think um i think in everyone especially in the church where you're, you're here and you're faithful but i think within everyone there's there's a discontentment with where we are spiritually, you know, in our church or where you are spiritually. And there's always going to be this desire to want to do something new or want to change things up. And that discontentment often makes you look at something that's perfectly legitimate, like a scheduled time of prayer, for example, or a list even like, let's say we, we, as, as the church, as as the elders, we put together a list of of things that we ought to pray for on a regular basis. Um, Sunday mornings, We have our prayer meeting in in the uh, family room. We have a list with uh, things that we should pray for. And we do this on a regular basis. Is that vain repetition? No, that's not vain repetition. That's a good pattern for the church. Um, And so we think about things like scheduling time for prayer. Or even in your own personal private devotion. um, Let's say you and your family decided to pray three times a day. Is that... Religious, pharisaical, vain, absolutely not. We it's, do that with everything. It's not legalism. It's not legalism, it's not legalism at so all. So many people want to label that quickly. Right. Everything we want to do in our passion for the word and the end, to put that label on it quickly. Yeah. There's such a thing. Yeah. Let's not be quick to label it. Exactly, it's, yeah. As opposed to rattling off how many Hail Marys are in our rosary. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, good point. Um, it, there's nothing vain about that. Right? We're, st- we're still required to come before the Lord with a pure heart Amen. when we do these things. So again, um, we see that Daniel himself had a personal commitment to prayer and praying in, in a secret place. Right, he, he reached the height because he was always climbing in his private life. For almost 70 years, this had been the pattern of his life. And he wasn't planning on changing it when uh, trials came. Like, I need... I need a newer, fresher theology. Uh, I need a new practice. I need to switch and change my tradition and do something different because I don't want to get religious, so to speak. No, he, he, this was something that he established that he, he did, and he did it, and he was consistent. And we see the blessing in that. Similarly, it is, it is a resolve to be men and women of prayer in the ordinary course of life that enables us to be the men and women of prayer in extraordinary occasions. So when your life is regular and ordinary and you come to church and you receive the what we call the ordinary means of grace, the, the regular preaching of the word, you hear that you hear these these words, right? Regular, ordinary, it's the ordinary and the regular things that God has said that would work in, ex, in extraordinary situations, right? Uh, we can't look past that. Uh, so again, um, these things should inform uh, how we how we understand prayer, and how we understand uh, the regular practice of prayer. Let's jump into for the next ten minutes. Um, let's jump into the specific petitions here. Going back to our main uh, text, Matthew six, beginning with verse nine. It says, pray then like this. And we we have the first. Uh, what we call preface, it's not, not the petition itself, but we see the words, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Uh, Jesus, did, like I mentioned before, he didn't pray the Lord's Prayer himself. The petition for forgiveness, things like that, would not be appropriate, right? Because he, he never sinned. Uh, but again, the church has called this prayer the Lord's Prayer because this is the prayer that he taught the disciples to pray. And it is the prayer of those who are living the life of the kingdom of God and doing so in the presence of their heavenly father. And so that's why it begins by saying our father in heaven. Uh, in it, we see Jesus gives this sort of fundamental structure and order of things for which we, we are to pray. And that, this is why it begins by saying pray like this. Not necessarily pray this, where I think it's a good practice to pray this, but his, his reason, his purpose for laying out this example was, was that. He was laying out an example. He said, pray like this. Uh, the prayer teaches us how he expects us to live the Christian life in fellowship with God. And Jesus tells us what life in fellowship with God is like in this new covenant. And if we were to ask for those principles by which all Christians ought to live... We can simply point to the Lord's prayer. Uh, Even though this is a prayer, um, we see adoration, confession, and petition. Uh, We also have rich theology that comes from it. It's also a teaching tool. It's almost a catechism. You see, uh, Martin Luther, in his catechism, um, included the Lord's prayer as a teaching tool. Um, Very rich with, with things that we can learn. Um, The preface, as it's often called, to the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father in heaven, is perhaps the most spiritually determinative um, of our spiritual condition, right? Uh, Repeating these words can signify what is most essential for us, an appreciation that the God of heaven isn't just the God of heaven for us, he is our Father, and this is how I mentioned, this is... Connected to what I mentioned before, that this is a very covenantal prayer. Uh, and it, it, in a most profound sense, theologians have noted that to be able to call God Father is what the message of the whole New Testament is all about. That prior to this um, revealing of Jesus Christ, the God-man, and the work that he did to save us, to unite us with God... And, and also to, to uh, accomplish the work that would allow us to be adopted by God, most people would really push away this idea of calling God Father. Uh, the, the Jews were very uh, skeptical about that. Um, in history, though, you do see after Jesus' time that, they, that there are some prayers out there that you can look up from the Jewish community that began to adopt this concept of father. But that was a big, big controversy. That wasn't something that you normally would see. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson wrote, you cannot open the pages of the New Testament without realizing that one of the things that makes it so new in every way is that here men and women call God father, right? The fatherhood of God, our sonship or our adoption is the very heartbeat of the new covenant. A failure to appreciate that I think could be fatal. Um, we are now able to approach God when we bring our petitions, not as a God who um, is distant from us, but if you're in Christ, he is very close to us. Um, and I think what's even more profound and what makes that a reality is that the way that the father treats the son in the sense that the way that he places his love upon his own son is the same exact love that we're receiving it, it's the it's the love that we ought to understand and uh, in which god has for us and that's often hard for us to conceive i yeah i struggle with that right because i know how bad of a sinner i am but but i have to put my uh feelings aside and believe what the bible teaches about god's love for me and his love for me is the love that he has towards his son. That's perfect love. Um, and so we, we ought to let that inform our prayers as we approach God. And so that, that's where we um, are able to understand this idea of our father. Uh, moving along, the passage says, our father in heaven. Um, those who have legally adopted children, this is just an example, can relate uh, to that moment, uh, whenever a child first begins to, to say dad or mom, uh, there's something intimate about that. right? And what God desires most of all is that his children not only possess the legal right to the privileges of this adoption that we have in, in Christ, but that they have a, a, a nature that can respond to them in words that fit this intimacy. Right When we pray, we, we should think in terms of, of having that intimacy, um, making your prayers fit the reality of our adoption. Um, and, and so that, that's important when we, when we call upon God, our Father in heaven. Um, it was a singular emphasis in John Calvin, for example, that the very essence of piety lies in the recognition that our lives are nu- nourished by God's fatherly care. And that is why Calvin adds... The first title given to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is Spirit of Adoption. Spirit of Adoption. Um, It is the knowledge of the fatherly love that is the true knowledge of God. Um, Let's see what else. What the truth of the fatherhood through regeneration and adoption means experientially is that we're loved by God no less than Jesus was loved by God. this This is what I mentioned before. That we need to we need to keep those things in mind. Um, re- regarding the heaven, our Father in heaven, uh, there's been attempts to place the New Tent- Testament emphasis upon sonship in the ground, or in the foreground, and thereby redress what has appeared to some as the imbalance of those Christians who whose outlook is related to too exclusively to the eternal future. Um, in other words. I'll say it this way, the sonship idea, for example, um, where where we f- see that and experience that here in the in the states, I think attempts to do that, and for those recovering from fundamental legalism, there's this attraction to this idea that you know God is your dad, um, that kind of messes up the um, the reality that God still is holy, mm-hmm. that God is still. Um Unlike us and and we need to we need to do, do away with that those ideas um, I, there's I've heard and seen prayers where um, in an irreverent way, uh, they would address God as daddy or pops. Uh, you see that, that sort of that sort of thing we want we want to do away with that. We never want to for the sake of adopting one idea of God doing away with, with um, the other realities of God, the fact that God is holy and he's a consuming fire. But this is why that emphasis of our Father in heaven is important, because on the one hand, he's our Father, but on the other hand, he's our Father in heaven. Okay, and the, the Lord's Prayer corrects us in that way, our Father in heaven. And by this, Calvin writes, God is lifted up, above all chance of either corruption or change. And it is as if he had been said to be of infinite greatness or loftiness, of incomprehensible essence, of boundless might and everlasting immortality. And this together with the first petition to hollow God's name, uh, reminds us that we're always to be reverent in God, in God's presence when we come before him in prayer. And so we come to him as children, but we should come to him as humble children. Mm-hmm. See that? So, no, Daddy God or no Pops when we pray. Trust me, please. Just don't do it. Hey, um, Will. Yeah, please. Or, right, you know, yeah, that's right. Good point. <laughs> yeah. So they have, yeah. there's a
1: proper, even though yeah. you'll play with them and this and that, but they still need to keep that um, reverence. Yeah, I fear. Put it this way. Mm-hmm. And of course, the imagery is so limited because God, God, God is so big. And that's right. He's even knowing my thoughts before I come up with it. So there is a dimension. mm mm-hmm you know the imagery of a child and his earthly father
0: is so limited in itself yes so, yeah sure. excellent point yeah good point yeah so again balancing the balancing of these true truths uh keeps our feet <clears throat> on the ground and our heads from swelling when we when we pray to this god um so again our father in heaven our father being um that privilege that we are now sons and daughters of the King of the, of the creator of the universe. That reality should inform our prayers as we approach God. Then it's our father in heaven where we don't take it too far, but we acknowledge who he is and who we are before him. And then of course, the hollowing of his name, which simply is, um, recognizing, uh, because he resides in heaven, um, because he's the Creator, because he is um, our Savior, because he um, he is not like us, he, his name is to be exalted, is to be is to be hallowed. That's um, all. I'll end with that. <clears throat> Next week um, we'll deal with um, your kingdom come. I think it's going to be interesting uh, to talk about that. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, so I look forward to that. Uh, Desmond will be leading us with that. Any any final thoughts or questions? <clears throat> yeah. Um, it seems like you have a lot of um, things that kind of relate to the attitude of, of prayer, but yeah. haven't quite actually said anything specific about the attitude. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that we need to remember that prayer is worship. And um, when, it comes to, when it comes to our attitude, our, our posture before the Lord, as it, as it relates to our heart, our disposition of, uh, of our heart and our mind, I think we have to always remember that prayer is worship. And I think for a long time, we've, we've made prayer to be something so casual um, because we do it often, that, that we've sort of departed from that idea. But prayer is worship. In fact, some of the, I'm just thinking back in, in the early Reformation, um, the, the books and the literature that some of the magisterial reformers would create as it pertained to worship in general oftentimes had the title of prayer or the prayer of church, whatever. And so prayer was an essential um, element to worship. It was considered worship. It, it's this idea that we're coming before the Lord. And so as it speaks to our attitude, our, our heart's disposition when we pray, um, I think that, uh, that that aspect of reverence, that centering our prayer, I'm not trying to sound uh, mystical or, or Eastern, but that centering our prayer um, in uh, with, with God, the triune God as, as that focus, um, I think is, is, is what we need to uh, think about and, and allow to shape our disposition as we come before the Lord. Um, you can pray in moments of despair in, when you're running around rushing and, and being, hasty, being, being hasty. I think th- that's okay. Uh, thank, thanks be to God that the Spirit takes our prayers and um, intercedes in that sense where our prayers are accepted <laughs> Uh, before the Lord, but I think right prayer, the way that we have to think about prayer, as far as our attitude is concerned, needs to be um, with reverence, um, with a focus on, on the triune God, um, and it has to be very Trinitarian as well. You you can't just approach God on your own. It's through Christ, by the Spirit, those things have to sort of inform uh, your your prayers. I don't know if that helps. There's there's a lot more to be said, but hopefully that informs how you how you approach God. Any other questions? I can take one more maybe? Yeah. Is there something you can have on say, our Father and my father? Yeah. Um, I think there is. I think there is. I <coughs> I don't want to uh, I don't want to say something uninformed, but I think I I would suspect that the, the idea there is that there isn't, there isn't one person that has access to God and and everyone else doesn't, but it is a, it is a corporate concept where all of us in Christ now have access to God. Um, So I think there's a corporate element there to it where the body of Christ ought to pray in this way. Um, but that's probably as far as I can speak to it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of that, looking at context, what's going on, the words that he's talking to the furrow. So
1: he's talking to the cycles as we move. And it is a corporate issue, but it's also an
0: image. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. That's helpful. Thank you. All right, let's close out. Well, Father, we, we thank you again. Thank you that you Um, Have allowed us to to talk about um, the prayer that we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. I pray that you would help us to remember these things, to revere you, and to consider you holy, uh, and that in that way we would approach you. um, That you would also help our heart's disposition towards you, that we would never be casual before you, but that we would um, recognize that prayer is worship. that what we do in prayer is to ascribe um, worth to you, not from ourselves, but what you've revealed to us—the worship that you, the uh, the characteristics that you've revealed to us through your Scripture and through nature—that from that we would acknowledge you and rightly um, come before you, um, and never, never with a heart and a spirit of of, of casualness. So, so we, we ask that you would do this work in our hearts by your Spirit. And help us to, to, to pray better and to always look to this example of the Lord's prayer as a structure, as an outline to inform how we ought to approach you. Uh, it is in your name we pray. Amen.